Today's teaching text is Genesis 15, verse 1. You can find that on page 14 of your Shed Bible. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. The word of the Lord. My name is Tim, and uh, just a brief invitation to begin this morning. I would like to invite you to, this week, be in prayer for our staff, um, for particular health and healing and uh, protection. We've had just a lot of sickness and injury uh, lately, and it feels like there's just a lot of things coming at us. So as we are those who always pray for you, just continue to invite you to pray for us as well. So if you would do that, that would be wonderful. There's folks who will share their specific stories, but just in general, we'd covet your prayers this coming week. And with that, uh, I wasn't planning to be here again uh, to talk in front of you this morning until uh, yesterday afternoon. I was actually at a barbecue, and somebody was like, who's preaching tomorrow? And I was like, well, Me. Uh, and what are you going to preach on? And I was like, I don't know yet. Any ideas? <laughs> and so this bro was like, brisket. I was like, all right. He's like, you know, you got the smoke ring, and then you got the fat layer, and then you got the meat. It's like the Trinity. Drop the mic. I was like, <laughs> so amen. We're, so we're not, we're not going to do that. But uh, we are going to dive into uh, week number two of our summer series, the Old Testament mixtape. We kicked it off last week looking at Abram, who is called in Genesis 12, into a dynamic partnership with God, setting the model for all of humanity to live in relationship, to live in life with God, participating in the work of restoring the world together. And while this story comes to us initially as the call of Abram, God is really calling a family. He's calling a family tree. Remember Genesis 12, I will make you a great people, make you a great nation. And families are complicated. Little story, I was in college and I had a project uh, over one of the, the breaks, and so I was at home while I was processing this project. It was a uh, family tree where, where you had to map it out and also look at a few relationships in that family tree. Kind of not quite like a genogram, which I would encourage anybody to do, but, but similar. And I begin focusing in on particularly my grandfather, my dad's dad, who had recently passed away at that time, and asking some questions of my, my mom at the time, um, about what he was like and asking some more serious questions about who, how did he relate to people. And he, he was a good guy, you know. He was uh, honor, served honorably in two different uh, branches of the armed forces. He was successful in business and farming and it was a university uh, choir instructor. And yet to him, as my observation, and it's confirmed by my mom, he was also a very harsh man. He was angry a lot. 
would flip the switch from being normal to enraged. And dynamics of insults and shame and cutting words were things that would come up often with him. And I began to wonder, as you do, as you're in that stage of identity formation, how then did that parenting shape my dad and his parenting? And how will that shape me? And so these generational patterns present themselves. And I would imagine that there are some that you are thinking about right now in your family. Patterns of absence, addiction, violence, disassociation, all sorts of things that show up in our world and in our relationships. And they do affect those who come after us as well as those who are around us. And so whether that's something that is theoretical right now in your mind or sitting in the very present pain or struggle of these generational patterns of brokenness or sin, we find ourselves in good company with those in the text. Because opposed to assembling an all-star team of individuals to carry forward God's mission in the world, God calls a family, very aware that family brings with it a lot. So let's take a look at where we left off last week. This is in Genesis chapter 12. If you have a Bible, it could be a great, great time to flip a few pages with me. So, uh, we are looking at Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abram. He says, go from your people and your father's household to a land I will show you. Come out of your family and begin a new one as a one who is called out. Now, makes me think of a Greek word called ekklesia, which is where we get this word of the church, as those who are called out, literally in Greek, the called out ones. So we too, like Abram, are called out. He gets called out of land and wealth and out of his father's family into a new reality. And while the story that follows is an incredibly rich, varied, and layered uh, family story, we're going to follow one of these particular threads, and it picks up in verse 10 of chapter 12. A couple interesting things here. God had just promised Abram land to go to, to provide for him, and said, I will be your God, and I will bless you and provide for you. Then we get verse 10. Here's on the screen here. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. Seems rather innocuous. Famine in the land comes up often in Scripture. There's no rain. We know a little bit about that. Uh, there's no water. Crops don't grow. There's a famine in the land. But it's our first clue that something isn't as it should be. Abram goes down to Egypt. Now, Egypt, as we'll see in Scripture, is parallel to Babylon, as we see later in the Old Testament. Egypt is not just a place. Egypt is a mindset. Egypt is a power. Egypt is an empire, a place you go for protection and provision that is not 
through God. So there's a famine in the land. And the one who had been promised provision says, I'm not going to trust that. I'm going to Egypt where I can see there is food. So here's where the problems start. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So I will say, you are my sister. The sister-wife thing gets weirder and weirder, as we will see. And so what does he do? In Egypt, the power of Egypt begins to have a hold on him. He lacks the courage to stick with his relationship, so he allows his wife to be taken into the house of Pharaoh. This is verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, oh, just kidding, verse 17, 16. And so when Pharaoh's officials saw that they had praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace and he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. He's getting wealthy. She's been taken into the house of Pharaoh just as, oh, somebody's sister, come on in. Right? We've got fifth graders in the room now too, but right, this is not going well. And then get this, verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. It appears when the bride is held captive in Egypt by Pharaoh, plagues show up. So just hang on to that for like five or six hundred more years. It'll show up again. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister and I took her as my wife? And then here's your wife, take her and go. Get rid of these plagues. Take the one who I have held and go away. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. As we begin to see, Abram, who is a good man, God calls him as one who is generous and hospitable, one who is learning to trust the promise of God. When there's famine, instead of staying put, he moves to Egypt. When he's his wife, that relationship might put him in danger and he says, no, that's probably my sister. Can you imagine? Because God had promised them something and he's like, no, no, no. He doesn't have the courage to see this through. And so this is a big deal. Pharaoh, I'm sure, is incredibly angry. And yet, a couple years later, we see something else show up. This is in Genesis chapter 20. By this time, God had continued to bless Abram, continues his covenant with him, changes his name to Abraham, and then we have Sarai moving her name to Sarah to signify new identity. God has spoken new identity over these, this family. The, what you were is not who you have to be now. Years go by, and then we pick up the story in chapter 20. 
Now, Abram moved on from there into the region of the Negev between the Kadesh and the Shur, for where he stayed, uh, for a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Again. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. It's happening again. But God came to Abimelech, the name of the king, in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead. Now, normally, we hear the angel of the Lord show up in a dream saying, do not be afraid. (laughs) This is a very different dream. You are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation he did not say to me, she is, did he not say to me, he's my sister? This is happening again. Thankfully, what we see different now is God moves in and speaks to this king who had taken Abraham's wife into his household to be his wife as well. And then God said to him, this is verse 6, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will surely die. Just to get the nice death sandwich, you know, (laughs) beginning and end of the dream there. It happens again. The same thing that got Abram in trouble, jeopardized, traumatized his wife, he does again. And we see, especially in Genesis, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. So, after this, this is fascinating. Abimelech, after they've, he's given Sarah back, gives sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and servants to Abram as he returned Sarah. Abram gets rich again after this incident. It's as if he's getting cultural reinforcement for his bad decisions. And maybe another thing, too. We also see that God is not tying blessing to behavior. Some of us have lived in that trap of an equation for far too long. The story continues. Abram and Sarah have a child. It's an amazing story. They're very old when this happens. I encourage you to read it. This child's name is Isaac. He grows up. He's part of the family business as Abraham's son. He finds a wife, and they are about to live happily ever after. All that is in the past. I know it was really weird. We hear these stories every once in a while by the family servants about the time my dad said his wife was his sister, and then again, but it was all cool because we got camels and servants and donkeys, right? Like, it's fine. So this is chapter 26. Isaac is now grown. His wife, Rebecca, are forging their own way in the world. What's this opening sentence say? Now, there was a famine in the land. The mistake 
of his father was then to leave the land they had been given and go to seek shelter in Egypt. But there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you for you to your descendants. God is interested again in intervening and saying the thing your dad did, you don't have to do. Your dad went to Egypt. Things did not go well. You do not have to do this. It's very explicit. Okay. Isaac, he listens. I will stay here in the land of Abimelech, the king of Gerar. So verse 6, Isaac stayed in Gerar. So a couple things to note here. The name of this king is the same name as the one who Abram encountered before. Same land, same thing. Abimelech, if you translate it into Hebrew, simply means son of a king. So as kings go, there's probably a lot of son of kings. Maybe it is the same king that Abraham encountered and tried to give Sarah to. Maybe it's that king's son as well. Either way, this is rhyming really closely. Here we go. Verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and he said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is your sister? God is using this foreign power to call out the incongruity and the sin of Isaac. And Abimelech continues, I'm sure, in a rage. He says, what what is this you have done to us? One of my men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt and shame upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife will surely be put to death. Isaac is caught in the sin of his father. Maybe by the very man who who caught his father in this sin. This is repeating itself. And I can imagine the moment when Isaac realizes this has taken place. The shame the entrapment, how do I get out of this? My whole life, am I just living into the pattern of something I can't control but instead controls me? Look at what it took from my father and now it's about to take from me. The generational pattern continues again. What's fascinating here is God breaks in at the beginning with Egypt and then continues to bless Isaac, or sorry, to bless Isaac through this. We get this in verse 12. Isaac planted crops in the land 
and reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. And there's also this where the king says, no one will harm you. Reminds me of his ancestor a few back, Jacob, or sorry, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother, and God actually offers him protection and blessing as he goes. There's a lot wrapped up here, but the family system keeps doing what it has done and hurting people again and again. So then it is that Isaac and Rebekah have a son. We hear this repeated often in scripture. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph, too, comes up, too. Kind of these, these patriarchs, these names, the one of whom we are the, the, we have been blessed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Isaac has Jacob, his son. And we wonder what happens in this. We move then to Genesis 29 and see if the sister wife thing continues at all. Because get this, Jacob was a child when the last sister wife swap happened. Jacob is wondering, what do we do in this famine as a child? And he sees his dad lie about his mom. It's my sister. I'm not sure what that does to a young person, but we begin to see kind of the spread and the influence of this generational pattern. And so it is that this young man grows up wondering what God will meet him in the world with. And so he goes out to find a wife. He travels north, which if I had a map to show you, is the opposite way of Egypt. So we're looking optimistic. His forefathers who had gone south or attempted to, to go to Egypt, he goes north. He's going back to the land of Haran where his grandfather was from. He meets uh, some servants of someone who is his uncle named Laban. He catches the eye of Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he falls in love. And so, in the text, we see this in verse 15. After Jacob had stayed with his uncle Laban for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell you, tell me, what, what should your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That weak eyes thing is fascinating. It's not really well translated. Some translations say she had pretty eyes, or maybe she was partially blind. We don't know, but we'll see what shows up later on. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he says to her father, I will work for you seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I feel like I'm reading in The Princess Bride at this point. Like, Prince Humperdinck's gonna show up. Just feel like the grandpa. And so it was but a few days till the Princess Rachel was his wife in his mind. 
Everything's going well. He doesn't go to Egypt. He's working really hard to to be united with the one he loves. The fairy tale is working. Maybe the sins of the father might be beaten. We shall see. But then get this. After seven years, Laban says, okay, you can be married to my daughter. But instead, he makes the switch. I don't know how first, like, ancient wedding veils worked, but they must have been pretty thick. Leah gets walked down the aisle and given to Jacob in marriage, not the sister that he wanted to become his wife. Pick up the story in 25, the day after the wedding ceremony, when morning came, there was Leah. Remember, get curious about the Old Testament. This is good. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter before the older. Didn't you have seven years to think of that? Right? We've been planning this thing for a long time. But what's really fascinating is that the story has multiple reversals. With the ancestors who always wanted their wife to become their sister, Now we have the grandson whose sister became his wife. The trick's on him. It's a brilliant, brilliant story. So what would he do? I think all eyes are on Jacob. The one who has the inheritance of when something with wives and sisters goes away, he doesn't want to, he tricks or he leaves. But instead, Jacob stays. And he says, I will work another seven years for this woman. And Jacob did so. It's not perfect. But what we see in this story is then at the very end, the one who is the sister becomes the wife. And the story continues. The same pattern that I'm sure was tempting to to Jacob, that of what his father did, his grandfather, he decides not only to make a decision in a different way, but to let, make that decision and live with it for seven years. To change the narrative. To break the pattern. Because God had showed him a different way. Now the thing we're talking about that comes up here in scripture is not just long-term behavior modification. It's not just the evolution of choices that we see here. Remember, at the beginning, God calls Abram out of his family. Maybe it was a great family. Maybe it was a rough one. Probably just like a lot of our families that has a lot of rough stuff that we don't want to repeat. And Abram gets called out. But he can't shed the patterns that quickly. And God continues to be faithful, showing up again and again and again, saying there is a different way. You don't have to go to Egypt You don't have to abuse and neglect and give away your wife for your own safety. 
And his son follows suit. And then it is the grandson who says there's a different narrative. It's a mixed bag in here, but the cycle is broken. As if the story's trying to tell us there's a different way where wives have become sisters for generations and then it is the work of the Lord and the faithfulness of the one who says that I will make this sister my wife. It's a thing God is doing, inviting us to live a different story, saying that the script we've been handed by our family is not sacred and there is a new way to live and a new people to be. A few weeks ago, I picked up a good friend from the airport. Or I didn't pick him up. He was coming to see me. He came via the airport. And I couldn't pick him up. I had a baseball game to coach. So my dad picked him up. So my friend Brian and my dad had about a 40-minute ride in the car together, talking, whatever. I knew they had had some good conversation. And the next day, I'm hanging out with my friend, and there's a pause in the conversation. We're talking about families and talking about his grandparents, etc. And he, he, he hits me on the arm. And he says, hey, your dad's really generous with his love and affection, isn't he? And I could only say yes. And I say that knowing where he came from and knowing that something had shifted. And in that moment, it is as if time and space came together. And what hit me like a ton of bricks was that the narrative had been changed. The narrative of scarcity and anger and rage and shame had been changed to one of blessing. Now there's all sorts of ways my family doesn't function right. But in light of what we've seen in Genesis and the stories that you now know, I can tell you beyond a shadow of doubt, if I did nothing good for the rest of my life, I will know my dad is proud of me. And that he says I love you. And that that is a narrative that God has shaped, not one that he inherited. And that I can parent and lead differently because of that shift. God changes the narrative of families. If you go down the family tree of this same family, eventually you get to one who they call the Messiah. It is Jesus, the one who will live out the way that none of his ancestors could. Early in the book of Matthew, he's baptized, given, uh, spoken as if given a new name and identity by the Holy Spirit, very similar to the name we see with Abraham changing. He goes into the desert, and Jesus begins to fast. There's a famine in the land. There's temptation coming. And what his ancestors could not do, Jesus does. He, he pushes away the temptation that is Egypt, that is fame, that is provision from any source that is not God. And Jesus says, I am not going to Egypt, but God, you are enough. 
He is able to do what his ancestors could not do. And in terms of what he does in continuing to flip the narrative around how people are to treat women in that culture, we see this in John chapter four. Jesus meets the woman at the well. He has a conversation with her as if they are close and friends, disciples maybe. And when the other disciples show up, this is the moment when he would probably, like anybody else, be like, no, we, we don't, I don't know you. She was just giving me water. She's a servant. But instead, Jesus invites her to follow him. Invites her into new identity because Jesus is not doing what had been done before. The same patterns do not hold him. And at the end of his life, when he is on the cross dying, when it seems like Egypt had won, when oppression had won, he speaks a word, this is in John chapter 29, to John the disciple. He sees Mary, his mother, who would then be a vulnerable, widowed woman, and he says to John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. Because what Jesus is now doing is the full reversal of the ones who who made women vulnerable and out of the family is now fully bringing them in to repaired and new family. So that what was does not have any power over what is and what has to be. Because the power that is within Jesus is also in us. And so friends, I sit with the weight of generations of people who've done broken things. Like you, I have patterns in my genes and in my habits that are more apt to rupture and break relationship than to bring together, to hide from God's love than go to the Father. And Jesus not only shows us a different way, but subdues the power of those relationships, of that evil, and invites us into a new way of living in his power and in his identity. And so I'm not sure what's swirling around for you and in you this morning as we see the way of Jesus, the good news that the inherited patterns of brokenness is not where we have to stay. But if you are hungering and thirsting for a new narrative, come and be fed by the one, the only one who has the power to save and change. Come and be refreshed by Jesus, the living God, who offers fresh start and new pattern. Come and confess what you have done, what has been done to you, what has been handed to you, and lay it at the feet of Jesus, the one who vanquishes the powers and offers us a new story. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So God, what can we do
in response to your love, to your opportunity, to new creation and repair. We give thanks to you. We offer our joy and our praise at this time and in all places. For you are God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so we praise you, God. We join our voices with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord. God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So God, would you send your spirit upon this meal, upon the bread that we break and the cup that we bless together, that it would be unto us the communion of the body of Christ, that we would be reminded that the power in us, in you, is greater than any story that attempts to hold us, your beloved. Would you fill us with the power of your spirit, the power of resurrection? Would you unite us and feed us and send us? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So it's Jesus who gathers with his disciples on the night which he was betrayed. He is to know betrayal as his great, great, great grandmothers did. He takes on the betrayal and ostracization of the matriarchs and redeems it. And he says to his friends, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten together, Jesus takes the cup says, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we do. We rehearse the narrative. That which is broken, God makes whole and brings new life. So come and take and eat that promise into yourself, into the family. We have folks in the back who would love to pray with you. If there's something you want to name, confess, break free from, we have tables around the room where you can come and take and eat or come and be served here in the front. Let this time be a gift to you. As the psalmist says, go down to the deep waters and do business with the Lord. As we rehearse and take part in and are transformed by this story, which we say together, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come, friends, and receive who you are, the body of Christ.